Have you ever considered the impact your work environment has on your health and your productivity? Enter Uplift Desk, a revolutionary standing desk designed to transform the way you work. And that's just the beginning of what Uplift Desk has to offer. With an emphasis on ergonomics and customization, Uplift Desk offers a solution that caters to the dynamic needs of modern professionals. Whether you're coding, designing, or podcasting, like I am right now, the flexibility to switch between sitting and standing can significantly enhance your focus and vitality. What makes Uplift Desk stand out is not just their commitment to quality and innovation, but also their dedication to creating a healthier workspace. With options to customize from over 100 desktop materials and a plethora of accessories, Uplift Desk ensures that your work setup is uniquely yours, promoting better posture and movement throughout the day. And here's an offer to get you started on a healthier work journey starting today. Go to upliftdesk.com slash timecrafting for 5% off your order. That's upliftdesk.com slash timecrafting to get 5% off your entire order. Your health, your productivity, your future self will thank you. Again, that's upliftdesk.com slash timecrafting and get 5% off your entire order today. Have you ever had that heart-stopping moment when you realized you forgot the password to a critical account? I have, and that's exactly why I switched to 1Password years ago, and honestly, it's been a game-changer. I can't do without 1Password, and I know that if you give it a try, you will feel the same way. And when you support our sponsors, then you support the show. So I encourage you to check out what 1Password has to offer One of the things 1Password has to offer is it combines top-tier security with an award-winning design, making password management a breeze for anyone, anywhere. From the moment I started using 1Password, I said goodbye to the days of resetting passwords and worrying about security breaches. You see, 1Password isn't just about convenience. It's about saving you from the real cost of data breaches and the daily time suck of password resets. It works seamlessly across all your devices, filling in passwords for you so that you can sign in with a click. And the best part, all you need to do is remember one strong password that protects everything else. I've been using 1Password for as long as I can remember. My family is using it. Everyone in this household has bought in. It's, again, a game changer. It's completely transformed how I handle my digital security and my family feels the same way. We've gotten away from using the same passwords again and again and again, or sticky note reminders or having that notebook that says passwords I must remember. Plus, 1Password is trusted by millions, including giants like IBM and Slack. With 1Password, my digital life and my family's digital life is not only more secure, but infinitely simpler. And look, if you've ever been frustrated by a family member constantly asking for passwords, 1Password's secure sharing has been a total relationship saver for me. It's so secure that the Associated Press relies on it in high-risk areas, which means it's more than capable of keeping your digital life safe and streamlined. So why not make the switch? Protect yourself, your family, and your business with 1Password. It's the simple and secure way to manage your digital life. And right now, listeners of A Productive Conversation get a free two-week trial at onepasswordcom slash productive convo. 
That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash productive convo. Again, onepassword.com slash productive convo. Check out one password. I know you'll fall in love with it like my whole family has. Again, that's onepassword.com slash productive convo for two free weeks. Check it out today. Hi, I'm Ron Friedman, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. It's always a pleasure to get to chat with Ron Friedman. I've had him on the program before, and this time we're going to talk about his book, Decoding Greatness, which has received rave reviews. Ron is an award-winning psychologist who served on the faculty of several prestigious colleges in the United States, and he's consulted for political leaders, nonprofits, and many of the world's most recognized brands. Popular accounts of his research have appeared in major newspapers, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Boston Globe, The Globe and Mail, Guardian, as well as magazines such as the Harvard Business Review and Psychology Today, and now he is gracing you and me with his presence today and having a productive conversation with me. He's also the founder of Ignite 80, which is a learning and development company that translates research in neuroscience, human physiology, and behavioral economics into practical strategies that help working professionals like you, like me, become healthier, happier, and more productive. I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you today. So let's get to it. Here's a productive conversation, my productive conversation with Ron Friedman. Ron Friedman, it has been a while. Well, it's been a while since we've done this publicly. We just talked for the last 20 minutes before we hit record. (laughs) How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Mike. The book is called Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. And right out of the gate, I want to talk to you about this idea of engineering. Because one of the things that I try to do for myself is I try to engineer certainty where certainty may not necessarily be apparent. And I've done this in my work with the idea of theming your days. We were just talking about this before about like creating like a knowledge framework so that I know where things are and I've had to engineer that. Is there, when when people are trying to become great or decoding it, like how much of a role does not just reverse engineering, but engineering certainty where certainty may not be apparent, how important is that? Is that something that plays a role in this whole thing? Well, I think that one of the things that is really critical to remember is that we don't have to create from a blank canvas. There are extraordinary examples in our field, and the better we get at recognizing those examples and then working backwards to figure out how those were created, the more of a map, and uh, I think that we can create for ourselves and really bridge the gap between what we're trying to achieve and how quickly we achieve it. And so the argument that I present in this book, Decoding Greatness, is that the stories we've been told about success are wrong. There are two key stories about that we've been told throughout our lives about how people achieve top performance. The first is that greatness comes from talent, meaning that you're born with a certain set of strengths and that the key to finding your greatness is identifying a field that allows those strengths to shine. 
The second big story is the story of, te- of, of practice. This is the Malcolm Gladwell story, the idea that if you just have the right practice regimen and if you have the right, if you have enough discipline to practice for an extended period of time, then eventually you will succeed. But what I discovered in doing the research for this book is that there is a third path to top performance. And that path involves working backward from extraordinary examples and then identifying how those were created to create a template or a map for yourself that you can then build on to evolve those proven formulas. And it's a path by which an extraordinary top uh, number of top performers have succeeded in the past. It's everyone from the way that Stephen King and Malcolm Gladwell learned to write, the way that artists like Pablo Picasso and Claude Monet learned to paint, and even comedians like Judd Apatow have relied on reverse engineering to study their craft. And so what I try to do in in writing this book is give people the tools to reverse engineer the best examples in their field so that they can learn from those examples and accelerate their success. Why don't you think people have been as aware about this third path? Because, I mean, I... I know I've 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 done it to a degree, but you're right. I fall victim to one of the other two, right? Because they're louder, right? Like we again before we jumped on the call, we talked about like the the noise factor that comes from opposing areas and how the middle kind of just is quieter because they're not as loud. I mean, the ten thousand hours. Heck, Macklemore did a whole song about ten thousand hours, so you know it's in the zeitgeist of pop culture when he he's talking about Gladwell's uh, idea. But why why is this third path been so? Um, hidden or uh, you know like hidden from view or 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 obscured Um, or is it just something that that has never really been kind of codified for lack of a better term until until you've kind of put it in this in this uh, in this context of the book you know i think people haven't discussed it because it's stigmatized i think there's an assumption that if i study somebody else's work too closely then i'm a hack i'm going to steal someone else's ideas but the truth is this is how we learn we learn by understanding how others have succeeded. And one of the things that really cracked this idea open for me as I was researching this book is a study conducted at a university of Tokyo that looked at what happens when people copy. And so the way the study uh, was uh, designed is that they brought in amateur artists into the lab. They divided them to two groups. The first group was asked to create original drawings for three days straight. The second group was asked to create original drawings for the first day. On the second day, they were asked to copy the work of an established artist. And on the third day, they were asked to resume their original works. And what the researchers were interested in is comparing that third day, group one or group two, which one is the most creative? Was it the group that just did original drawings the entire time or the second group that had paused to copy the work of an established artist? And what they found is it wasn't even close. The third group, the one that had paused to copy the work of an established artist was significantly more creative on the final day of the, of the study. And it wasn't by, as we would assume, copying the style of the established artist on the second day. It was by going off in completely different directions. And it's because what happens when you study someone else's work very closely and you try to reproduce it is that practice forces you to compare your instinctive inclinations against the choices of a master. And because you're constantly comparing what you wanted to do versus what they did, that opens your eyes up to new possibilities that are hidden within your work. And so what that study helped me realize is that, no, far from making us hacks and and, uh, encouraging us to duplicate the work of others, if we can apply the power of reverse engineering, in fact, we will unlock our own creativity. This, this is fascinating to me because I was having a conversation with a couple of my colleagues not not even a week ago about dissenting voices and like dissenting. So 
expanding your mind and looking outside of what you know what you would normally think in terms of we get, whether it's political or whatever and looking at them this comes up in and i know i brought this book up so many times recently for uh oliver berkman's new book uh four thousand four thousand weeks where at the very beginning of a chapter he talks about martin heidegger and he says okay first off this is this is the bad stuff that he did and if you've known i mean he he was not a uh uh a moral person in that regard but some of his ideas were strong, like some of his other ideas outside of that, that idea of, you know, I'm going to be a member of the Nazi party were strong. Um, is Other than being a Nazi, he was a great guy. Yeah, other than being a Nazi. <laughs> no, but, that, but I think that what happens is we often dismiss everything out of hand because of that. And I, I don't necessarily sure. think that that's the best. I think, does is there a relationship to that too when you were talking about like reverse engineering, like looking at, like saying, hey, you know what? I've looked at these other things. I've looked at what I know I like or what I know. Should I look at what someone else has done and that, that maybe I have a dissenting view of or I've never really looked at? Can that fall into this as well? Or is it much better when you start to go down the path of, okay, this is something that I've, I'm passionate about, I'm comfortable with. Let me look at what they did and then reverse engineer it from there. One of the things I say in the book is that the alternative to reverse engineering isn't being more original. It's operating with it's it's really operating with intellectual blinders. So unless you're using this, you're not going to be learning from different people in your field. And I think there's incredible value to looking at what your competitors, what your contemporaries are doing, because it's in that process that you discover new opportunities. And we live in a world now that is evolving so quickly that unless we're doing that, unless we're constantly learning from other people, we're going to get left behind. And so what I hope that this book offers people is our tools that they can then use to not just look at other people's work and get jealous and get angry because, oh man, I wish I'd come up with that, but instead have a completely different perspective, which is, wow, that's really interesting. I wonder how he or she did that and how can I learn that to and apply those insights into my work? And so I think if you have that mindset of, man, I can, I can now work backward and figure out how other things were created, whether they be a well-written email or the perfect presentation or even an exceptional website, having that tool to then kind of like pick the lock and figure out, okay, how is this created and how can I apply this to something I'm working on? That really opens you to new opportunities in anything you experience. And it doesn't have to be even work-related because what we know from, from the research that I discussed in the book about creativity is that creativity, as Steve Jobs famously said, is just connecting things. And so your job really isn't to try and become a complete original because in fact, originality gets rejected all the time. You're far better off finding great ideas in different fields and then combining them in new ways. So right out of the gate, you, you talk, you, the book is divided into two parts, but you talk about creativity. We've touched on that as we've begun our conversation. And chapter three is called The Curse of Creativity. So we've been talking about it in glowing terms, but then there's a curse element to it. Can you expand upon that a little? Yes, absolutely. So we often conflate the idea of originality with creativity. And in fact, the ideas that are the most successful are not the ones that are the most original. Origin, original ideas tend to get rejected, and it's because as a species, we tend to be distrustful of the new. 
Right. And that distrust extends to the way we experience new uh, n- new content or new opportunities or new products. We just feel like, oh, man, I don't really know what to make of that. So as an example, I, I offer um, the Apple Watch, which is uh, a very handy device. I love it. Um, it was not by any stretch the original smartwatch. The first smartwatch was uh, produced by Seiko. Then there was one that was uh, put out by Microsoft. Those were uh, out in the market over 10 years ago. They had many of the same features as the Apple Watch, and they were rejected because people just didn't, weren't ready for it. I also offer the example of Radiohead's music, where Radiohead had their first two albums were incredibly successful. People loved them. Then they went decided to go off in a different direction, and people just didn't know what to make of it. Rock critics um, I just were very furious at Kid A. I've, I just, you know, they just re-released Kid A. I tried listening to it again. I still don't get it. Um, and maybe that's just me. I don't know. But but the, the point is, is that, you know, this isn't just my personal opinion. There's research on this. And so one of the studies I cite in the book is was conducted at Harvard looking at the type of research uh, uh, research grants that get funded by places like the NIH. And what they did was they took a whole bunch of studies. They had experts rate them on a number of different variables, including originality. And then they looked to see what predicts whether or not a research grant will get funded. And what they found was the more original idea, the more likely it was to be rejected. If it was completely unoriginal, that didn't get any funding either. The, the, the studies that got the most funding were the ones that were slightly original. And then I connect that idea to a quote from Don Draper, who uh, in one of the episodes of Mad Men famously said, derivative with a twist. That's what people want. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that turns out to be true. And I think far from, you know, I think being... Um, disappointed by the idea that original ideas get completely rejected, I think that's really empowering because what it suggests is that you don't need to hit your head against the wall trying to come up with a completely original idea. Not only are you unlikely to be successful because that's really, really hard, but in fact, even if you were successful, your idea would ultimately be rejected. Your job is to take an established idea and make it just a little bit different. And a great example of this, and I talk about this in the book, is the story of Barack Obama. And how you know, a lot of people just don't, uh, don't don't naturally assume that Obama was not a gifted speaker right out of the gate. In fact, he was a terrible speaker right out of the gate. He got he got trounced his first race for Congress. And the problem uh, was that he was used to lecturing students as a law school professor. And out on the stump, voters don't appreciate being lectured to. And so he got trounced in his first race. He loses by a margin more two to two to one. He thinks that he might have to leave politics. He doesn't know what his next step is going to be until someone on his campaign team says, hey, why don't you go check out what pastors are doing in the church to engage their flock? He comes back two years later, and all of a sudden, he's using repetition. He's telling stories. He's modulating his tone. And the rest, of course, is history. And what I love about that story is it illustrates so clearly how Barack Obama didn't go off into the wilderness to find his talent. He didn't practice for 10,000 hours. He figured out what was working in a different field and incorporated it into his own, making himself just different enough from other elected officials to be unique. That's something that we can all apply to our field, regardless of where we're working. Uh, Just figure out what's working in a different field, incorporate that into your approach, and make yourself a little bit different than your competitors. Have you ever looked into fasting and thought, I love the benefits, but I can't go days without eating? Well, that's where Prolon comes in, transforming the fasting experience with a plant-based nutrition program that tricks your cells into thinking they're fasting without actually having to stop eating. 
Developed through decades of research at the University of Southern California Longevity Institute, Prolon is not just another diet, it's a scientifically backed program designed to support your body's natural processes. Now keep in mind, this isn't about cutting out food. It's about providing your body with the right nutrients to enter a fasting state while still eating. The program includes snacks, soups, and beverages, all carefully designed to support healthy blood sugar levels, cardiovascular health, and even reduce abdominal fat. And the convenience? That's unmatched. Everything you need comes in one box delivered right to your doorstep. Thousands of doctors now recommend Prolon for its health benefits, backed by Nobel Prize winning science. So if you're looking for a way to kickstart your health journey with all the benefits of fasting and none of the hunger, Prolon is the answer. And right now, Prolon is offering a Productive Conversation listeners 10% off their five-day nutrition program. Go to prolonlife.com slash timecrafting. That's P-R-O-L-O-N life.com slash timecrafting for this special offer. Again, that's prolonlife.com slash timecrafting. Check it out today. Ever caught yourself marveling at the seamless magic of everyday tech, like how noise-canceling headphones block out the world or the sheer bliss of meeting-free Fridays? Now imagine if there was a way to bring that kind of magic into selling online. Well, guess what? There is, and it's called Shopify. From the moment you decide to launch your online shop to opening your first physical store, and even when you're pinching yourself because, yes, you just hit a million orders, Shopify is there to guide your growth. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or the latest productivity tools, Shopify supports you everywhere with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. The checkout, oh, it's a breeze for your customers, converting up to 36% better than other platforms. And with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant, you're selling more with way less effort. And you won't be alone in your Shopify journey because Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., supporting giants like Allbirds and Brooklinen and millions of entrepreneurs across 175 countries. Their award-winning support is always there, making sure businesses that grow, Grow with Shopify, and yours can be one of those businesses. And for those looking to level up, Shopify's endless integrations and third-party apps from on-demand printing to chatbots ensure your business is always ahead of the curve. So what are you waiting for? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash timecrafting, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash timecrafting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash timecrafting. Ever found yourself deep in a project, your flow state so intense that the world around you just fades away? That's the magic zone where ideas take flight and your work truly comes to life. But what if, in a blink, it could all disappear? Hard drives fail, coffee spills, and yes, even the dreaded accidental delete happens. But fear not because CrashPlan has your back. Don't wait for disaster to strike. Head over to CrashPlan.com slash timecrafting now for a free trial and secure your creations with their limited time buy one, get one offers. Supporting our sponsors means supporting this podcast, so take a moment to check them out. 
Crash Plan is the superhero of cloud-based data protection, specifically designed for people like us who live and breathe their digital creations. Crash Plan ensures that every file, every idea, and every piece of hard work is safely backed up and protected. With Crash Plan Professional, you get unlimited backup for your computers, not servers or cloud apps, just pure essential data protection for PC, Mac, and Linux. This means your business plans, designs, music, and documents are continuously encrypted and updated in their secure cloud without you lifting a finger. Imagine this, your laptop takes a dive during a late night work session. With Crash Plan, it's not a disaster, it's just a minor hiccup. Their service runs quietly in the background, safeguarding every change you make every 15 minutes. And if the worst happens, your files are just a few clicks away from being restored with unlimited version retention acting as your personal time machine. For businesses, Crash Plan's multi-tenant capabilities are a game changer. Buy as many licenses as you need, manage them with ease, and let your team or your IT admin restore data seamlessly, saving precious time and resources. So go to crashplan.com slash timecrafting now to sign up for a free trial and take advantage of one of their limited buy one, get one offers for a productive conversation listeners. That's crashplan.com slash timecrafting. Back up better with Crash Plan. So one of the things that comes up a lot, uh, when it, especially when we're talking about productivity, time management, all that stuff, is this idea of being able to know where you're at, being able to measure it, right? Like I got to inbox zero, which is a measurement measurement of productivity, sort of. But I mean, you can't measure that versus like writing a book, which is qualitative productivity. Sure, there's quantitative elements. I you know, wrote this many pages, et cetera, et cetera. And you get into the second the second part of the book, you start talking about this idea of the scoreboard principle. That intrigued me because I I like the idea of when someone says when they when they put a word principle next to something that's math or numbers oriented, I'm like, okay, so this is both going to be quantitative and qualitative, and Ron's gonna tell me how. And now he's gonna tell you how. That's listening right now. How does that work? <laughs> so before as you mentioned, there's two parts to this book. Yeah. The first part of the book is what is reverse engineering? How do people do it across a wide range of fields? So yep. everything from chefs to photographers to entrepreneurs. And then I show you how to reverse engineer and then evolve that formula so that you make it your own. Right. The second half of the book is about bridging the gap between your vision, the formula, in other words, that you've reverse engineered and evolved, and your current ability. There's going to be a gap there. And unless you um, figure out a way to upskill really, really quickly, you're going to get disappointed and you're going to give up. And so the second half of the book is all about upgrading your skills by applying the latest science to the way that you work. Right. I begin by talking about the scoreboard principle. And the scoreboard principle simply states that measurement begets improvement. Anything that you measure, you are likely to improve upon. And there are all sorts of evolutionary reasons for why this is the case, why we are designed to keep track of numbers. Just to give you one quick example, if you are uh, out in the savannah, you encounter another tribe, unless you get a quick read on the size of that tribe, you are not going to make the best decision to maximize your survival. You don't know with, who, with whom to ally, with whom to uh, partner and, or, or run away, mm -hmm. right? So you need to have that information. It's critical to your survival. This is why we are so attracted 
two numbers. It's why app designers are, you know, obviously clued into this. We have all kinds of apps that have no reason for keeping score, and yet they use it. It's because they realize that if we they keep score, if they force us to keep score, we will we're more likely to get hooked. Um, we also know from the research that that if you want to improve on, uh, as I said it before, anything you want to improve, you can you can do that through measurement. And so there's research showing that even if you have the if you divide two people to, into two groups, you give them the same diet, you have one group keep a food diary, the group that keeps a food diary will lose more weight, even though right. it's completely the same diet. It's because they're paying more attention to their decisions. And so if you want to get better, the key is to identify what your metrics are. And so one of my favorite metrics, it's actually one that Cal Newport shared on his blog, is um, the number of uninterrupted minutes over the course of a day. If you keep track of that number, you're likely to boost your uninterrupted minutes. It's not just because um, you're focused on on, on measuring it, it's because uh, at the end of the day, if your numbers are really low, that's going to feel that's going to elicit shame, and that that emotional boost is going to is going to lead you to reinvest in that metric the next day. And so it all starts with figuring out what your metrics are, both short term and long term. And the critical thing is, unless you do this, unless you figure out what your metrics are, you're going to fall prey to all of those other matrix metrics, like how many. Um, I don't know, LinkedIn followers, how many people retweeted your tweet. And it's so so if you can develop your own metrics and identify the ones that are really in your control, you want to make sure that the metrics are in your control. That gives you a focus and it gives you the freedom to ignore all other metrics. One other thing I'll say is I think that so many of us don't know what our metrics are. Right. And it's why we are we kind of suffer emotional whiplash where you know you you go on social media and one of your friends just bought a fancy car and now you want to optimize for status and then a friend of yours calls you up and says hey uh how about we go out to this fancy restaurant and now you're optimizing for fun and you go you listen to a finance blog uh, or a finance podcast and and they're you know telling you about the benefits of of long-term thinking and now you're optimizing for that and so regardless of where you are, you feel like you're not doing your job. (laughs) And and if you you take the time to identify what your metrics are, I just think that that is a far better path to not just success, but also well-being. Do you think that imposing boundaries and knowing your thresholds is a, is key to this too? I know we're not, I'm, I'm deviating from this a bit, I believe, but I mean, one of the things that I've thought and, and is that, the more you try to do, the more you spread your attention out, the less likely you're going to be able to succeed, whether you're trying to do creative work or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that plays a role against greatness. So, I mean, what you're saying is we need to do a number on the numbers game. We need to say, OK, well, this is our this is what we need to measure. And then we need to try to defer or defy everything else. That's a lot easier said than done. But um, are there other examples of like bound like boundaries to me? They seem to be important. Is that one of the elements that you, you you go into in the book into greater detail, or is it just something that um, is is going to happen when you start to follow through on some of the tools that you offer? You know, I think that there's two different ways of interpreting that sure. question. So I want to address both. The first I would say is that in the book I talk about the benefits of keeping track of undesirable metrics as well as desirable metrics. Okay. So you want to have the, those the kind of the counter to the thing you're trying to uh, succeed on because one of the things that often happens is you're so good at, at, at um, achieving the metrics you set out for yourself that your performance on something else suffers. And so one of the things you want to think about is if I'm really, really good at succeeding at this metric, 
what are some things that can fall by the wayside that I want to avoid? So an example of this in the sales world is if you're optimizing for getting as many leads as possible, you might be getting some really bad leads. Mm -hmm. And so having that, 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 that kind of um, corollary of lead quality is going to help prevent uh, you from from optimizing for the wrong thing. So having desirable and undesirable metrics are key. The other thing I would say on boundaries is that you don't, I mean, it's really easy to say, okay, I'm going to, I want to just optimize these 500 things. <laughs> and, yeah. and then you're, you're spending 45 minutes filling out your spreadsheet every night and you know, you laugh, but there are people no, who do I this. Know. I, I know. They truly are. And it's, um, I think this is useful to a point. And what I would just suggest to anyone listening is if you can just start out by identifying three metrics that, uh, that, uh, that, that help you identify what a, what a good day looks like for you and keep track of those three metrics. That's a great place to start. You don't have to be bound to those metrics for the rest of your life. So it could be like, you know, as I mentioned, a number of uninterrupted minutes at work, could be something along the line. Think about the, the thing that you hate doing that actually drives your success. For a lot of people, it's connecting with clients. Maybe keep track of how many uh, uh, client emails you sent out to, 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 to reconnect with people who uh, could be helpful to you. Um, and maybe it's just something about, you know, like the number of minutes exercising. Maybe that just, if you could just work backward from your ideal day and say, what would make tomorrow successful? That'll give you a hint as to what your metric should be. You mentioned the food diary thing when I, yeah. you said like one group that measures versus the other, the one that does it are going to, and I'm like, Oh, that was me. I was both groups. One time I was the group that was measuring and one time the group I wasn't. And that's absolutely what happened as I, but, mm-hmm. but I also recognize that I want to be in better shape, which is such a big lofty, like it's, it's hard to wrap your head around it in terms of like, this is what it like. It, there's, there's not as much definition to it as one might need. So that, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Does it mean meditation? It means yoga. It means running it means this. And I think that the, that achievers like myself and, and I know there's others are like, okay, I want to be great at being in shape. So they don't like, I know that I've run the risk of saying, okay, well, I'm going to do yoga, go for a run, do all this stuff. And I try to do too much. I think that's, that's part of the, part of the process too, right? As, as you just said, like, Start with three and, and go from there. Is it maybe incumbent upon people if they're going to do this and they're going to start to go through some of the the, the tools and, and stuff you talk about in the book, um, is if they're going to try to be great in multiple areas, maybe start small in several areas or is it do three things in one area? Like is it that, – that's, that's one of the things I think people try to do is they either try to do massive improvements in multiple areas or improvements in multiple areas or massive improvement in one. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, it, it, I think that the biggest, bigger danger of the two is not having any metrics at all, yeah, which is fair. the default for 99.999% of the human population. I think that you're going to pretty, you're going to identify what your limits are pretty quickly. And I would just urge you to start small. Really the way, the reason, the reason I bring up the scoreboard principle at all is because I'm trying to help you figure out how do I get good at that formula I reverse engineered. So if it, whether it be, you know, let's say becoming a good speaker, creating some metrics for yourself that help you determine whether or not your performance was strong is really key because now you can start to improve on specific features of your talk. The more metrics you have, like for example, how many uh, times did I say, um, Yes. That's a metric. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many 
how how was my flow between ideas? How successful was I at memorizing? How effusive was I in my delivery? Those type of metrics will help you improve on your talk as opposed to just saying, I want to give a good TED talk. Right. Um, when you were doing the research for this book, as we get close to wrapping up, what was something that surprised you when you came across? Oh, man. There was so much. There was so much. So as I mentioned before, the idea that creativity, that that being original backfires, Mm -hmm. the idea, I guess what I would say is the thing that surprised me the most is the extent to which reverse engineering is widespread. And so in just the first chapter of the book, I go into, I talk about Judd Apatow and how Mm -hmm. he reverse engineered his idols. In his case, it was starting a fake podcast at the age of 15. Uh, I say it was fake because it was a radio station that was actually housed in his high school. And so he used this to reach out to agents and to talk to other comedians. And he invited all, all these other comedians on to the show. What they didn't realize was that it was a kid doing a high school show and the signal didn't go further than the parking lot, yeah. but he used it to create a Bible for himself on how to write comedy. Mike, you're, you've done stand up. Well, comedy. yeah. And I actually own the book sick in the head by Judd Apatow. Where he talks That's about right. That's where that came interviews. from. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. It's such a good book. And yes, I, I mean, that is a good book. Apatow is one of those guys where I'm like, cause again, um, and when you were talking about originality and creativity, like when people, when you watch Marvel cinematic movies right now, I'm like, Oh, like I was watching the Hawkeye trailer yesterday with my son. I'm like, oh, it's Die Hard. Like so, so it was like, like what they're doing is they're they're anchoring you with like, mm. okay, this is you, you. We know you love superheroes, and mm-hmm. here's a here's a like WandaVision was great because WandaVision went through all of the different decades of stand of of TV sitcoms, and I know that when they pitch things like that, because when I was doing comedy and when we when I was in the throes of working towards doing screenwriting and stuff like that. The derivative with a twist is very apt because you're like, what is this? It's like Pirates of the this Caribbean meets that. in space, right? right? Like it's so that <laughs> exactly. way because they can they can get that right. Whereas if yeah. it's something completely original, it's really hard because no one's seen it before. They're afraid of it, right? That's the other thing. Exactly too. right. And you know, I mean, when this a lot of what keeps us from doing this stuff are biases, right? Like the biases that work for us, and there's biases that work against us. Um, okay. Uh, what was one thing? Like I know when I've done. Oh, wait, research. oh, hold on. I no, did, you got to let, let me yeah. go back to. Yeah, yeah, go yeah, back. Go so back. I, I talked about Judd Apatow. Yeah, right. But then it extends to musicians. It extends right. to chefs. It extends to photographers. It extends to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I talk about what their formula is, mm-hmm. and um, pharmaceutical drugs. It extends to weapons, and it extends to auto manufacturers where they actually have a Netflix lights database where they all reverse engineer one another's cars. And then they share all the intellectual property and it has lifted the entire industry. So again, far from um, making people hacks, it's actually led to safer cars and uh, incredible technological innovations. So I guess that was surprising to me. I guess I thought, you know, this is something the marketers do. They read each other's emails. They figure out the formula is no, this is going on in every industry. What when you're doing the research, because I I love it when this happens. And again, going back to Oliver Berkman's book, I found myself doing like nodding a lot to what he was saying to me because it was the audio version. When you were researching for the book, was there that there, there must have been at least one moment where you were validated? Like it was like a yes, because I mean, you obviously went down the path of writing this book with a with some thoughts in mind of like, this is what I want the book to look like. This is like this is why I'm writing it. And then you come across a piece of information or a story that says Yes. Did you have that moment? 
Anyway, I had that moment in that study with, with, the, with the University of Tokyo. But I'll tell you something else that actually kind of validated this for me mm. is when I found when I read a story about how Kurt Vonnegut would reverse engineer stories in, in his field. And really? what he would do is he would uh, graph out the protagonist's fortune over time. Uh, and, and so what he would do is that he'd have on the x-axis on the bottom from beginning to story to the end of the story on the y-axis is how are things going for the main character are they going poorly are they going well and at the it's kind of like giving a story in x-ray where he would be able to identify what is the shape of the story based on how things are going for the protagonist and what he found while doing this is that in fact if you look at all of the stories that have ever been told there are six key stories that repeat over and over again and just as an example he talks about how the the story of cinderella maps on to the story of Annie. And so at the beginning of the story, both Cinderella and Annie's lives are going very poorly. Uh, Annie's an orphan uh, being abused by Miss Hannigan. Cinderella's in the basement uh, being abused by her stepsisters. Then something good happens. Cinderella gets um, summoned to, has the invitation and has the fairy godmother. Annie gets rescued by Daddy Warbucks. Then something terrible happens. The clock strikes midnight. In the case of Annie, she gets kidnapped by people pretending to be her parents. And then finally, at the end, they are reunited with their loved ones and they live happily ever after. It's the same story. And unless you reverse engineer it and come up with that story map, you never recognize it. I never even thought about that. Like I, I there are some that are so obvious, like the Shakespeare, you know, 10 Things I Hate About You is, you know, uh, whatever, Taming the Shrew. Like there's a bunch of them that are, um, she's all that is my fair lady, which is Pygmalion. Like, but that one, nope, never even dawned on me that Cinderella and Annie were so <laughs> closely related. That's 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 stunning. Huh. Yeah, and again, once you have that formula, once you understand what makes a story work, now writing your story becomes a lot easier. And you don't have to follow the formula precisely, but again, knowing that formula and knowing why people like what they have liked gives you a roadmap that makes your work so much easier moving forward. Well, Ron, we've, I mean, the, the book is Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. I mean, we've got, I mean, there's talking in here about practicing three dimensions, how to talk to experts. We're not going to get to it all day because we want people to pick up the book, which, by the way, where can people pick up the book and where can they keep up with you and your work? Well, the best place to go is uh, decodinggreatnessbook.com. The reason I mentioned that website is because you could pick up the book anywhere, but if you send us your receipt, we will send you a free course on how to learn to apply reverse engineering to your field. And you can find out more about, about me at ignite80.com. And the, that's the name of my company. And the reason it's called Ignite 80 is because over 80% of employees are not engaged at work. And so our mission is to teach leaders and their teams science-based practices for lifting their employees' performance um, um, creativity and success. Ron, it was great to catch up and have a productive conversation with you today. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Big thanks to Ron for joining me on the program. If you want to catch up on all of the things we talked about, other than looking in the podcast app that you're using, which I'm sure you have also used to subscribe to future episodes, we'll come back to that in a second. You can also find all the show notes at productivityist.com slash podcast three nine nine. Now, again, you're looking at that podcast app right now. You're saying, Hey Mike, I am subscribed or Mike, I'm not subscribed. How do I make that happen? You subscribe and then you can easily access the archives of nearly 400 episodes. Plus you'll get easier access to the episodes to come, including episode 400, where I speak to Dan Clark of brain.fm. That's a really good conversation that you don't want to miss. I 
I just love talking about things that kind of help you focus and uh, Dan definitely knows about that. We just talked to Ron about that. Now you will get into another conversation about that next week. So subscribe to the podcast. That way you don't miss a single episode of what's to come. And there is plenty to come in the weeks and months ahead. That's it for this time. I'm Mike Vardy. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting the sponsors of this episode, which you heard throughout the episode. Make sure that you support them just like you support the show. In fact, it's a way to support the show. So Thanks to those sponsors and thanks to you. I'll be back next time again with Dan Clark for episode 400 of A Productive Conversation. But until then, remember to stop doing productive and start being productive. I'll see you later.